From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Michael W. Gray is a professor emeritus of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and the Center for Comparative Genomics and Evolutionary Bioinformatics at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, Canada. He is a fellow of both the Royal Society of Canada and the American Academy of Microbiology. You will be the guest speaker at the November 18th Science Sundays event, a free and opened to the public event at the College of the Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University. Welcome to Craft, Dr. Gray. I'm very pleased to be with you today. Well, the title of your talk is, What Do We Really Know About the Origin of the Cell's Powerhouse? Referring to mitochondria. So what do we know about the origin of the cell's powerhouse? Well, we know a lot, and much of what we know comes from studies of the mitochondrial genome, the DNA that's present in mitochondria. There was a theory that was initially advanced in the early part of the last century that suggested that mitochondria and chloroplasts in green plants and algae actually were captured bacteria that had been incorporated into a host cell, and that theory languished for a good 50-60 years because there was no real evidence supporting it. And in the 1960s, a investigator by the name of Lynn Margulis, who had at that time was married to Carl Sagan, the astronomer, so she was known as Lynn Sagan, published a very important paper in the Journal of theoretical biology. Uh, That was last year was the 50th anniversary of that paper. And she marshaled uh, growing evidence in support of this theory, basically resurrecting it. And one of the pieces of evidence was that it had been recently discovered that mitochondria and chloroplasts contain DNA, so that if you believe that these organelles were originally bacteria, then the inferences was that this DNA was the remnant genome of a bacterium. And by studying that DNA, we actually have been able to marshal pretty good evidence that it was a bacterial genome. And on that basis, that is support for the endosymbiotic origin of organelles from captured bacteria. So this is fascinating stuff, but it may be difficult for everybody to get a handle on it because it's something that is really, I think it to me, advanced science, or at least uh, there's a lot of really impressive words. (laughs) So help me walk me through the idea here is the idea that the cells then would take in an external bacterium and that helps create the the mitochondria within the cell which powers the cell yes so how did the cells pre-exist if they didn't have a mitochondrial power cell well there are other ways of generating atp they're simply not nearly as efficient as the way in which mitochondria do it it is possible to get along without a mitochondrion. After all, bacteria don't have a mitochondrion, but they generate energy through a process that basically is very similar to what a mitochondrion does. And what a mitochondrion does, that pathway has actually been conserved from the endosymbiotic bacterium. So it's a symbiotic relationship between most cells and this bacterium. That's the the proposed origin, correct? That's right. It was, we think, a symbiotic relationship in the beginning, but it is now a dependent one because the number of genes that are still encoded in the mitochondrial DNA and that are essential for making a functional mitochondrion, the number
number of genes is very, very small. So most of the proteins that make up the mitochondrion, which are about perhaps a thousand different proteins, almost all of those are actually, the genes are in the nuclear DNA, the main genome of the cell, and are expressed in the cytosol, and that is made in the cytosol and imported into the mitochondrion. So I'm familiar with things like uh, symbiotic relationships in the, the human digestive tract, where there's bacteria there that eat food and then excrete things that are of use to humans. How does something become as tightly interconnected as the symbiotic relationship, the endosymbiotic relationship you're discussing? That seems like it's a really amazing kind of process of absorption. Yes, it, it really is when you consider what must have happened to convert a bacterium, as we know, current bacteria, into an organelle. And it would have involved a loss of a lot of genes that maybe were duplicated in the endosymbiont that the host already had and really didn't need additional copies of. And a transfer of a number of the genes that were brought in by the bacterium, transfer of those genes from the endosymbiont genome into the new nuclear genome. And so in the process, this bacterial genome, which maybe had hundreds or even maybe a thousand genes, was shrunken down to at most about a hundred genes in the most gene-rich mitochondrial genome. And therefore, basically, the organelle is dependent on the function of the nucleus for most of the proteins that it contains. Are you able to see processes like that in other places where you've got endosymbiotic? relationships between two formerly separate entities that are now one? Are there other places you can point to as an analog to what's proposed for the mitochondria? Well, certainly we can we can infer that these kinds of processes have occurred by studying what goes on in mitochondria and the nucleus in different organisms. So that what we come across is, for example, a situation where a mitochondrial DNA still has a fair number of genes, and some of those genes in other organisms aren't in the mitochondrial DNA anymore, they're in the nuclear DNA. But by studying the structures of those genes, we can be very sure that those genes at one time in evolution were present in the mitochondrial DNA and over evolutionary time have been moved into the nuclear DNA. And there are a few systems that investigators are studying where it looks like an endosymbiont has come in more recently and there are more genes in the endosymbiont genome, uh, but you can see that some genes have definitely been moved into the nuclear DNA. So it's an ongoing process, and we're pretty sure that this is what has happened in a general way over evolutionary time. It's a fascinating process, and one of the things that I started thinking about as I was reading about your work is that when I hear the word symbiote, I almost immediately think of like science fiction symbiotes. Like There's a new movie out from Marvel Comics with a character called Venom that takes over bodies and, and stuff like that, but science defines symbiotes to be mutually beneficial to both organisms, as I understand it. How is this relationship beneficial for the bacterium? I can see how it works well for the cells, but if the bacterium is absorbed, what is the bacterium getting out of this relationship? When we're referring to endosymbiosis, we're really referring to the very earliest stage when the relationship was set up. And in that case, it may have been that the symbiote received nutrients from the host 
and the host may have received something from the symbiont as well, or it could have been basically a, a neutral situation where the symbiont is basically protected within the host cellular environment and can reproduce and then can leave. You know, there are a number of ways that one can think of how the initial endosymbiosis might have been established. But then at some point, it became basically impossible for the symbiont to leave, if you will, because of some of the processes that I've described, where it's losing genes and the nucleus is then taking over. And eventually it becomes another organelle. We call it semi-autonomous because it does have a genome that has to divide and organelle has to divide, but it really is certainly under the control of the nuclear system. Right. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I had mentioned earlier the science fiction aspect of it. It's almost like the cell becomes the bad guy in this thing. It it takes over something else and uses it for its its own uses. And it's just a, a fascinating thought about how things evolve to be able to find something that's functioning so well on its own and absorb it into the cell and make use of it must, I would think, provide certain amounts of time in the lab just sort of staring at it thinking that's one of the most amazing things that I've seen in a long time. That's right. And I should emphasize what I wanted to do in my talk is to provide the facts as we know them on which the theory is based. And I should say that there are an amazing number of models of how this might have happened and when it might have happened during evolution. And there are basically divide into two categories, one called mito-early and one called mito-late. And mito-early models suggest that the host cell, whatever it was, and the bacterium united right at the very beginning of the process that led to the evolution of nucleus-containing or eukaryotic cells, and that the establishment of the mitochondrion early was critical for that process. Whereas mito-late models suggest that the eukaryotic cell had already developed a lot of the properties that we associate with it, such as internal membranes, the ability to do phagocytosis, that is the ability to take substances or organisms into the cell, and that the mitochondrion came around later was very helpful in the end, and in fact probably critical for the development of multicellularity, but did not play as critical critical role in the development, the original origin of the eukaryotic cell, as the mito-early models argue. And so, you know, what I wanted to do was to contrast what we know and how far we can go with the solid scientific data in evaluating some of these various models. Which seems more persuasive to you, the mito-early or the mito-late? Which do you think is uh, more likely to be something that's borne out by further research? I'm a bit on the fence at the moment, but I tend to favor the mito-late or later models for one reason. The mito-early models really don't present a mechanism for how the two cells in that model could have gotten together because both of them would have been cells that had cell walls. And in contrast, in the mito-late models, it is the mechanism is dependent on phagocytosis, which is the ability of cells to take up other cells. And that's a very, very common property of single-celled eukaryotes, protists, uh, protozoa, and so on. Well, 
Professor Michael W. Gray, I thank you very much for talking to me today, and we're really looking forward to you coming to The Ohio State University on November 18th for the Science Sundays event, which again is free and open to the public, and I'll have more information for that on the website. So thank you very much, and you know, have a great day with the eukaryotes, the prokaryotes, the bacterium, and everything that you're working with. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I'm really looking forward to the visit to uh, Ohio State. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. <laughs>